Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we're going to have one guest with us today. U.S. Representative Baron Hill, who represents the 9th District in Indiana, is uh, we're expecting his arrival momentarily. Right. I think he's on his way in. So I think we'll he start is. shortly. That's, oh, that's right. there he is now. Hi, there Baron. Is. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to live radio. That's right. So we're, we are uh, on the air, and, and Baron's going to get settled there for a minute. But I heard the gardening show was great last week. It was very busy, yes. We had a lot going on, and yeah. maybe all the plants we talked about are going to be a thing of the past after this week of freeze we're having. So. No, but, but we have politics this week. That's government, right, and that's never a thing of the past. Right, right. Baron, I was in Washington last week, so well, welcome to the Good program. to be here, Bob, yeah. with you. Glad, yeah. glad that you're back in Indiana. I'd, I'd rather be here than in Washington. Absolutely, myself. even if it's only 30 degrees outside. <laughs> I'd That's rather right. be back here in Indiana. You That's have the it. day off for Good Friday? I have the day off except for this radio show today oh. and I drove over here to visit with you good folks. Well, thank you. We're, we're happy to have you. There's a lot going on in the, uh, in the Washington orbit these days. A um, few big issues I want to talk about. But, but first, I just want to talk to you about – I just want to ask you how it is being back after your, yeah, how does it your feel? two-year hiatus. It's um, – <laughs> It's a wonderful feeling. I'll be honest with you. I'm ecstatic about being back in Congress. Uh, I loved being in Congress in the six years that I was able to serve. was, of course, disappointed when uh, I got defeated in 2004. But it is uh, a real uh, genuine experience to get uh, your old seat back. So mm-hmm. I'm happy. How's the, what's the feel out there? Of course, it's got to be different than your last it experience. It is. Yeah, it is. It, uh, I've never been in the majority before. And um, it's a good feeling that when you go down to the House floor to cast a vote, you're usually going to win on that particular <laughs> issue, whatever it might be. So it's a big change for me. Mm-hmm. Do, do you see uh, – I know there was a lot of talk going in of, of bipartisanship and a lot of working together to try to, to get things done because there, there, I think there, was, there have been a lot of messages from voters about you know, the nastiness of politics and the, the, the great um, partisanship that we've seen. Do you feel like there's more working together? Not a whole lot, unfortunately. I'm mm-hmm. s- uh, sad to say, um, and I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. Uh, I've, I've, I do have a lot of Republican friends in Congress. I can honestly say that. Uh, but Washington is a town where you know the members who are especially in leadership wake up in the morning and say, "Okay, how can we fight today?" As opposed to, "How can we get along and try to solve the nation's problems?" So. I'm disappointed that it's that way. I think the American people are, and I'm going to do all that I can to, to, to reach out to my Republican uh, colleagues to see if we can work together to solve common problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, there are a lot of voters that are pretty upset with that, and I, I know, mm-hmm. you know we're probably going to see – we've got a big presidential election coming up in a – in 2008, and we're going to see some of that uh, heading into that election. But I think it is the perception from here that there isn't a whole lot of working together going on. Not a lot. Now, you know, when you get into the issues that don't have a lot of um, attention mm-hmm. and are not real sexy, uh, there is a, quite a bit of uh, a bipartisanship. For example, we passed a bill that appropriated almost $2 billion to give uh, cities and towns across America a pool of uh, resources where they could fix their sewers. Mm-hmm. That's great a, money that really yeah, right. comes in handy. Yeah. yeah, and that was bipartisan, but it's it's not an issue that's a real uh, gets a real yeah. lot of attention, so there's no need to fight over it. Yeah, we're not going to put a lot of headlines on that story. <laughs> <laughs> no. No legs. Although we're happy you did it. <laughs> Baron Hill is our guest today. He's uh, the congressman from Indiana's 9th District. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. And we have a lot of... Uh, we have a lot of um, email already, yep, already. and uh, so people will be lined up on the phone soon, I'm sure, Baron, but we'll take some email first. All okay. right. Let's start with this one. Uh, how serious do you see our federal budget deficit to be? Do you see Congress able to make the hard decisions uh, to uh, – let's see – on move back to – a oh, uh, move back to a balanced budget after we are able to end our spending on Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, that's a loaded question, a long question, yeah. I should guess I should say. Um, Multi-parter. Yeah. Well, I've, I'm very concerned about our nation's uh, budget deficit. We're now approaching $9 trillion in, the, in debt. Gosh. It means that well, – translation, that means that the second largest expenditure in our nation's budget is interest on that debt, second only to military spending. That's unbelievable when you stop and think about it. If we didn't have to pay all that interest, we could uh, solve a lot of America's problems that we have here in this country. Now, uh, are we doing something about it? Are we making the tough decisions? I think we already have made one tough decision in passing PAYGO rules in the House, 
which simply means if we're going to spend uh, extra money or we're going to uh, cut taxes, you've got to figure out a way to pay for it. And that is really throwing a, a, a cringe in a lot of the decisions that we're making. So, But it's the cringe that we need in order to enforce discipline because it's the PAYGO rules that were in place when I was in Congress mm-hmm. that expired that we've now re-implemented that actually got us out of the budget uh, deficit in the first place. So I'm glad we did it. Do you have numbers uh, off the top of your head what this breaks down to as far as every – oftentimes we hear every man, woman, and child just going into this now owes X number of dollars. $29,500 for every woman, man, woman, and child in the, co- in the country. Scary wow. stuff. It is. All right, we have our first phone call, so let's go to Rob. Rob? Hi, it's Hi. Rob Stone. Hello, Rob. Hi, Rob. I'll Hi, bet you Aaron. Wanna, Hi, everybody. Mary pr- Catherine. I want to talk about health care, I'll bet. Uh, you read my mind. <laughs> uh, I, I have a question for Baron. And, um, um, you know, Baron, we haven't talked since just before the election. And, uh, of course, my question is about health care. I think there is a growing s- consensus that we must move towards some sort of universal health coverage. Uh, there's no consensus yet on how to implement it, although the AFL-CIO you know, national leadership voted unanimously two weeks ago or a few weeks ago to support the idea of Medicare for all as the best solution. The bill that best characterizes that, I think, is John Conyers' bill, H.R. 676. And um, actually, during the campaign, I asked you to consider signing on as a co-sponsor of, of H.R. 676, and you said you would, would consider it. I really think, you know, there are about 60 co-sponsors right now, and I and none of them are, none of them of the Blue Dog Democrat Caucus has signed on yet, and I would love to see you uh, lead the Blue Dogs into support of H.R. 676 Medicare for All. Well, Rob, first of all, hello, and <laughs> good to hear your uh, your voice. Tell Karen I said hi, by the way. Okay. Um, we, uh, we have talked about this uh, quite a bit, of course. As a matter of fact, um, I don't know if your ears have been burning or not, Rob, but for the last two days I've been talking about uh, what you're wanting me to do. I was at the Columbus Hospital uh, on uh, Wednesday and talked to uh, doctors, nurses, administrators, and some people from the public, uh-huh. and uh, I told them about uh, what you wanted me to do. I was at Salem Hospital uh, yesterday and down in Jasper Hospital yesterday to talk about health care issue. So I, the point uh, I'm trying to make is I do take this whole issue of health care very seriously, and I'm trying to figure out what people want, what they were willing to do. Um, I need to do more of that, Bob, before I give you a definite answer. I'm not necessarily opposed to what you're wanting me to do. But I want to get input from a lot of people before I decide to go there. And so that's what I've been doing for the last two days is visiting hospitals and talking to doctors, nurses, and the public at large. Because, um, you know, you have 47 million Americans without health insurance. And I don't need to tell you this, Rob. You're an expert on on all of it and make a very good presentation. So uh, I am not um, dismissing the idea of going on John Conyers' bill, but I'm still trying to get input from the public first. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, Rob. Thanks. Rob Stone is a physician in town, for those of you who don't know. And a health care activist. A health care activist. That's right. And, and really an expert on, on health care issues. Mm-hmm. He really knows his facts. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember, Barron, in the campaign, you said many times, you know, that the country has to decide whether health care is a, a privilege or a right. And mm-hmm. so I guess you're trying to figure out how to, how to make that work. Well, I still feel like it's a right. And I have drafted language to pass a constitutional amendment to uh, make it a right in this country. I'm working on getting uh, co-authors uh, for that constitutional uh, bill that I've already got drafted. I plan to uh, introduce it probably in June, and we'll see where it goes. Mm-hmm. All right, 855-0811-877-285-9348, and noon at indiana.edu. Here's another email that came in. It says, I've read about the U.S. Department of Transportation's proposal for corridors of the future. I believe the proposal is a method to fast-track major highway projects and essentially bypass and or circumvent existing federal laws in public review. Further, I believe three of the finalists on the short uh, in this program are at least in part in Indiana, including New Terrain I-69, which goes through your district in part if it were built as currently proposed. Would you speak to the corridors of the future concept? Uh, And also, could you provide an address for interested citizens in your district to make comments about this proposal? Uh, The address that uh, they ought to write to to me is uh, Post Office Box 1071 in Seymour, Indiana. Uh, That is my political box office, but... uh, I actually go and open up my mail there. So if they want to get to me directly, they can write to me at P- Post Office Box 1071 in Seymour, 47274. 
Um, I've heard some uh, about this corridor proposal. I've, I have suspicions about it uh, because I think it is bypassing the legislative process. I want to look more into it, but uh, I, am, I do have suspicions about it. Okay. All right. Let's go back to the phones. We have Chris on the line. Chris? Uh, yeah, I had a question about immigration uh, reform and and where you stood on that. Um, I, and I had a couple of points that I wanted to make towards that. Uh, I know of um, some illegal uh, immigrants in the Bloomington area that have been um, taken back to um, Mexico in this case. And then in about three weeks or so, they have uh, were able to return back to Bloomington. And uh, so I have some concerns about that. But then uh, I also have... Uh, some in-laws that I've been trying to bring from outside of the country uh, purely for a vacation. And uh, every time they make a trip to the embassy, they're denied uh, because they're seen as an intending uh, immigrant. And so I'm curious about what the balance is between uh, between immigration and allowing people to come here as a tourist and, you know, how, how that uh, – uh, relates to the to the image of the country for people outside the country that that are intending tourists here. Where are your relatives trying to come from, Chris? Uh, China. Okay. Uh, well, Chris, uh, you, uh, you've raised a very interesting uh, issue, and that is the fact that a lot of our legal immigration laws are too strict. And uh, one of the uh, solutions, I think, to illegal immigration is to make legal immigration easier to obtain. And uh, there is a need for legal immigrants into this country. They serve a useful purpose. As we all know, America is the melting pot of the world. So part of the solution for illegal immigration is to make legal immigration uh, uh, easier to obtain. All right, Chris? Uh-huh. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348. And noon at indiana.edu. Again, Baron Hill is our guest. He is the representative from Indiana's 9th District. Uh, before we get back to the email, I, I, as I mentioned, I was in Washington last week with a bunch of newspaper editors. So uh, we, it seemed like the topics that were most discussed uh, around where we were from the, the people from um, Capitol Hill that we talked with were Iraq and um, – Mm-hmm. Secretary Gonzalez and what was going on mm-hmm. with him. So I wanted to introduce both of those topics. Um, the uh, the resolution on Iraq to to set a time frame for getting out and then the potential of cutting out off funding. Can you explain where you are on all that? Uh, I voted for the the, uh, the supplemental bill to set the benchmarks and the timetables, but this is not uh, any difference in my campaign. Um, issues that I articulated in the last campaign. I mean, the fact that there are benchmarks and timetables is uh, exactly what in the end of the campaign I was actually talking about. So I believe that we have to have these benchmarks and that uh, we have to tell the leaders in Iraq that they have to step up to the plate and take control of their country. We can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. We've done our part. Our soldiers have performed magnificently. Now it's time for the Iraqi people to take charge. Uh, they ultimately have to uh, run their own country. And these benchmarks and timetables is not a cut-and-run philosophy. I don't care what the Republicans are saying. It is making sure that we're supporting the troops to the tune of $100 billion, but at the same time mandating that the Iraq uh, uh, leadership uh, find ways to settle their political differences, to uh, get a a resolution on how they're going to share their oil revenues, to get their military ready, and to uh, make sure that their police are uncorrupted like they are now. And the only way you can do that is put benchmarks and timetables in there to do it. And I think it's the appropriate thing to do. Okay. You know, Baron, i got to ask you, during the campaign, um, you said that you had been given some misinformation um, prior to your vote um, about the Iraq War. I, I, I'm wondering how it is to work with these folks who um, provided that misinformation and how you have any level of trust at all uh, with the current administration. Uh, Mary Catherine, uh, you advanced a ask a question that that I dwell with in my mind all the time. I I just have a lot of uh, hard times to uh, trust this administration because I was uh, given false information. And so, um, you know, I want to do the right thing, uh, but it's hard to do the right thing based upon information that is being provided to us by the administration. You just don't know whether to believe it or not. So, uh, it's difficult to answer to your question. All right. And I have a follow-up uh, email to the question um, that uh, Bob just asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid said 
uh, this week that if President Bush vetoes the current supplemental spending bill that calls for troop withdrawals, even as it funds the Iraq war, he will work toward legislation that cuts off funding for the war. Will you co-sponsor and support such legislation in the House? Uh, It says, please state a clear yes or no before you give us your explanation of why. No, I won't do that. I don't believe in cutting off funds to the troops. And Senator Reid is a friend of mine, and I know where he's coming from. He's frustrated, too, with the president, and he's trying to call his bluff. And, um, you know, maybe that's the way to go. It's just I'm not ready to go there. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, I, I did admit, I've got another phone call, but before that I want to talk about the attorney general and uh, Gonzalez's mm-hmm. – um, uh, the, the firing of the, the eight uh, U.S. attorneys and the fallout from that. Um, Again, I guess I'm just asking a general question of, of your take on that. Do you think that that was a purely political move or do you uh, do you accept some of the explanation that's been coming from the Republicans? Uh, Mary Catherine, you asked the question, do you trust this administration? The answer to that is no. I don't, and I don't accept the explanations that they're giving Bob on this. Uh, I think that the firings were for political reasons and uh, people need to be held accountable for it. Mm-hmm. I think it's very scary stuff. It is. I would agree. Okay, we have two phone callers. Let's go first to Stuart. Stuart, go ahead. Yeah, uh, hi, Baron. This is Stuart Wetterholt, a longtime uh, uh, friend and uh, supporter of yours. Uh, good to see you back in Washington. Thank you, Stuart. Good to hear from you. Uh, it's been great. I've been a member of the uh, uh, DCCC with, uh, Nancy, and did some work with Nancy Pelozo and all the chums uh, up on the hill. I'm glad to see you're all trying to work together here in a bipartisan effort. Uh, Since most of the questionings that you're going to be receiving are about health care and and, uh, uh, our position overseas, let me turn the table um, back home uh, where really I think the Democratic Party is is, uh, more concerned, uh, at least historically, uh, the Democratic Party has always been one to be a um, uh, an independent uh, go, fight for independence, stay at home um, uh, kind of politic, and help helping the working poor get ahead and 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 further their pursuit of happiness. Am I right? You're exactly right, Stuart. Okay, and and. Uh, I've seen a, uh, an abysmal lack of, uh, of um, uh, uh, domestic issues being overlooked, underpaid. Uh, we have an uh, underpaid uh, federal system in, uh, uh, in Indiana. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency has now announced that Indiana is uh, the third most polluted state in, uh, in the union. And uh, we're very concerned about uh, our, our drinking water here in Lake Monroe. And uh, uh, there are uh, laws like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act that, uh, as you know, uh, uh, George and his cronies are trying to circumvent the uh, uh, deadlines. What do you see on the horizon uh, in, in redoubling your efforts to uh, get allied uh, as it used to be. The environmental issue, as you recall, was a bipartisan issue up until 1968 when, uh, remember, Jean, uh, clean Jean McCarthy in 1968 ran uh, in, the, uh, <clears throat> in the Chicago primary, and then uh, pe- uh, people became alienated because... Uh, uh, the Chicago 7, and, and it became politicized. Stuart, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but, but we're going to need for you to get to the question. Sure. The question is, is what do you see yourself doing in, in helping us here at home uh, um, get some of these uh, uh, domestic issues like raising the people's incomes, getting better jobs, and particularly the the – Protecting the environment. Well, let me ask you that, answer that, Stuart, by saying it's a new day in Congress. Uh, I'm a Democrat, of course. Uh, I'm proud to be a Democrat. Uh, but that means that uh, the Democrats, of being in the majority in both the House and the Senate, 
are going to be uh, turning away from the policies of George Bush for the last six years, especially as it relates to the environment. Great. I serve on the <laughs> Commerce and Energy Committee that uh, addresses this issue. As a matter of fact, we're having hearings uh, when I get back uh, a week after next about global warming. Mm-hmm. And so we're starting the process, Stuart, in answer to your question and addressing uh, the issues of clean air. Research and yes. uh, new scientific uh, research. That's uh, a part of what we're going to be doing on the Energy and Commerce Committee as well. Great, great. Um, uh, is there any uh, is there any money in the in the coffers that can be uh, uh, to relieve people? Uh, I know locally we're in need. We have people that are hungry, and uh, we try to explain to these people why. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a helicopter costing billions, of, uh, millions of dollars might go down, and we don't have money, uh, you know, for uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina members, uh, people down in uh, New Orleans. And uh, it gets awfully embarrassing that there's no uh, real, um, uh, uh, that there's no real profile for. Um, uh, for the Democratic, um, you know, uh, well, Stuart, personality. You're, Stuart, you've always been somebody that's been concerned about the uh, poor and the people who couldn't take care of themselves. We've had discussions about right. that before. And I, I believe that there is a, a commitment in this Congress to do a better job than we've been doing for the last six years relating to this. For example, as, you, as you've mentioned, Katrina, uh, in the supplemental bill, while I think there were some unnecessary spending things beyond Iraq that were thrown in there, there was a good uh, chunk of money that was sent, uh, uh, that was appropriated for the victims down in uh, New Orleans who were affected by Katrina. So we are addressing those issues as we speak, and they will be uh, become a reality. All right, Stuart, thanks One a lot for the call. Thing, uh, there is a... Uh, well, very quickly, uh, please. We have to take a break. Okay, fine. All right. Nice talking to you, Bill. Thank you. Okay. I do have a quick follow-up uh, that came in email. Uh, it says, most climate scientists say that man-made global warming is a runaway train that's already left the station. As a legislator, what initiatives will you push or support to radically reduce the causes of this disaster and to mitigate its consequences here and abroad? Uh, ethanol, biodiesel, hybrid cars, clean coal technology with uh, uh, carbon sequestration is, uh, as, as a part of this. Uh, you know, just recently, uh, uh, there were some two, two new buses that are operating in Bloomington, Indiana, that run on biodiesel and, and, uh, and electricity. My point to all this is we've got the technology in place to clean up our environment by going a different way in alternative forms of energy. And I've worked with uh, Dave Rollo here in Bloomington uh, on this particular issue. And uh, it's, it's a matter of will okay. and spending the resources to make it happen. We can, we can do this, but we've got to do it now. We can't wait. All right. Uh, I'm going to ask our caller, uh, Greg, to hold on until after our break because we've hit halftime here. So you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking with Baron Hill today, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU staff will be assisting the Red Cross in collecting used books, videos, and music for their annual book sale. You may drop off your donations in front of Borders Books and Music in Eastland Plaza on Saturday, April 14th, in the morning from 9 to noon. More information about this and many other events and opportunities on our website, WFIU.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, U.S. Representative Baron Hill, who represents Indiana's 9th District. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And I want to go back to the phones to Greg and Greg, thanks for being patient. Hello, go ahead. I have some concerns about what Daniels is doing and what seems to me nearly a very criminal act, uh, the privatization of the Family and Social Services Administration. Um, he's based on these lies about error rates, about how the, there's much more ease of access to benefits. Mitch Daniels is giving away $100-plus million a year to people that his people have worked for in the past. It's an extreme conflict of interest. And I went to the hearing at Ivy Tech in Indianapolis, and there were hundreds of people there opposing this. Henry Waxman and Tom Harkin are on record, very suspicious of it. The Department of Agriculture is supposed to be sending people to Indiana this month or next month or this. There's not a single person except the ones that are benefiting financially and politically that are for this. And, and they're getting all this money based on lies. To me, that's a crime. And it would sure be nice if the federal government could help stop Mitch Daniels. Well, there's a, 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 a woman by the name of Rosa DeLora who is uh, also very concerned about what uh, they're do, trying to do here in Indiana as well. And I, I forgot who the caller's name was. That was Greg. 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 Um, and has uh, a, filed a bill to... Um, uh, try to checkmate uh, uh, Governor Daniels on all this. Uh, I have some real concerns about it as well and support what Rosa is is doing. Um, you know, I suppose that in some areas, privatization of of governmental services is appropriate, but th- appropriate, but this is not one of the areas, in, in my view, that is, along with trying to privatize uh, the lottery. So uh, I share your concerns, Greg, and will do all I can to... Uh, make sure that uh, the governor knows that there are those who uh, oppose what he's trying to do. But they're up in front of the legislators saying things how we don't want people to come into the offices. We want to be able to... I mean, clients don't have phones, they don't have computers, they don't have cars. And and now, they, they, it's just a complete lie. What used to take one interview to get food stamps in Indiana now takes a minimum of two face-to-face interviews. So they're getting over $100 million a year based on lies. I've shown that our error rates are equal or above the national average. I mean, they are just scamming hundreds of millions of dollars from the state to the pockets of this company called ACS and IBM. It's all based on a lie, and, it, and the neediest Hoosiers, that they're going to be cut off. And people who are homeless, who can't eat, people who are choosing medicine or food, I mean, it's just, and it's going to get worse. It's bad now, and it's going to get worse. All right, Greg. Thanks a lot for the call. You know, that Thank raises you. another in- interesting question, though. Um, everyone knows that um, Mitch Daniels is a former employee of, of George Bush, and they have a, a very strong relationship. How's your relationship with our governor? Uh, I have a friendly relationship uh, with the governor. I, I don't uh, agree with a lot of the things that he's trying to do. But uh, we had a chance to visit on, of, of all uh, things, Air Force One uh, about three weeks ago when the president invited me to come in uh, with him to talk about No Child Left Behind down in New Albany, Indiana. And, and the governor was on the airplane uh, uh, with me, and I had a chance to, uh, for about an hour and a half to visit with him. So I, I get along with uh, the governor. It's just that I don't happen to agree with a lot of what he's trying to do. All right. Thank you. All right. Back to the phones. And Bob. Bob? Hi, Bob. Hey, Bob. I'm Mary Catherine. Hey. Bob Arnold. Uh, uh, I have hi, a question for uh, Baron Hill uh, about No Child Left Behind. Uh, his current thinking about reauthorization of it, and particularly the negative aspects, the unfa- uh, unfunded mandates, the one-size-fits-all aspects of it, the punitive uh, measures against uh, schools and school districts that don't meet average yearly progress. Your thoughts on uh, uh, no, no Child, child Left Behind? Uh, uh, the caller's name was Bob. Bob, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bob if uh, in its present form, No Child Left Behind is presented for reauthorization, I will vote against it because I agree that there are many things in there that uh, are punitive in nature. They're not uh, designed to help schools but to punish schools. Uh, the one issue that I heard over and over again last year in the campaign when I would talk to teachers and school superintendents and uh, 
principles was the fact that uh, special needs children were included in the formula that judges whether or not a school is doing well or not. I think special needs children need to be tested, but I think it needs to be outside the formula uh, as, as, as it's determined whether or not schools are doing well or not, because uh, many of the special needs children just can't get to where the rest of the kids can, are going to uh, get uh, by a, uh, through their schools. And so it's unfair uh, to punish schools uh, simply because you have this kind of formula in place. And so unless those changes are made, um, and a lot of other changes as it relates to punishment in schools, I will vote uh, against it. I was talking it's – it's ironic that you, you're bringing this up because my wife is a school teacher. And I noticed in the Columbus Republic, which is a newspaper in Columbus, Indiana, they had a list of all the schools that had failed ISTEP. And I don't know if that was in the Bloomington papers or not. But uh, yeah. one of the schools that, were, that failed was the school that my wife teaches in. And I, and, I, and I go to that school all the time. I know it's a good school, and my wife's a good, a good teacher. And to say these, all these schools are failing is misinformation, for heaven's sake. I think our public school system, while it has some problems, by and large does a pretty good job of getting an education. All three of my daughters uh, went through public schools, and my youngest daughter, uh, two of them are grown and on their own, got a good education in college. My youngest daughter is here at Indiana University and wants to be a doctor. And so I believe that our public schools are doing a, a real good job, and it should not be labeled as something drastically is wrong with them. And I, I just think no child left behind just contributes to that perception. I think it also forces teachers to teach to the test, and I've, I've seen that in my own son's education. I think that's an unfortunate approach. But, Bob, I wanted to thank you for bringing this issue up because I wanted to ask about that too. Okay, well, I'm very pleased with uh, Baron's response to the question. Thank All you. All right, Bob, thanks a lot thank for the you. call. 855 and noon at indiana.edu. And Zora is on the phone. Zora? Yes. Hello. Hello, Zora. Go ahead. Yes, Congressman Hill, uh, thank you, first of all, for uh, uh, doing this. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to talk to uh, our congressman. Um, so I have a, a couple of specific questions. Uh, what to do with the DREAM Act? Um, and for those of um, uh, those I'm people, just sorry, could you repeat up, that? What is the name of the act? It's uh, the Dream Act. Um, and for those not familiar with this, um, it's a bill that is designed to um, decriminalize um, those um, the children of illegal immigrants who uh, came here uh, a very long time ago uh, as as kids. And basically, after uh, high school, have no avenues for pursuing further education or legalizing their status. And um, I wonder, uh, Congressman Hill, what your position on uh, on the Dream Act is. Um, and, and I'll let you address that. Okay, let me uh, answer your question, Zora, by telling you about uh, a young woman that I met in in uh, Jasper, Indiana, who was uh, deported back to. Uh, uh, South America because um, she um, was not legal, and uh, she g- had grown up here since she was uh, like like six years old. Spoke fluent English, uh, was an American. Mm-hmm. She she didn't bl- uh, belong in Colombia, is where they uh, deported her to. Uh, so I am very sensitive to, to the issue that you're bringing up, and I wanted I would be supportive of legislation that takes into consideration uh, young. Uh, uh, women like this uh, person that I met in Jasper, Indiana, who actually went to school at Indiana University and after graduation had to be deported back to Columbia. So I'm very sensitive to what you're saying would be supportive. Baron, is there a, a, a phone number to talk to if, she, if Zora wants to call and talk to one of your staff members more about this issue? Yeah, my phone number in Washington, D.C. is 202-225-5315. And we just, got, we just have a brand new ph- phone number down in Jeffersonville in Bloomington, and I don't know what I haven't memorized them yet. Well, maybe maybe one of your staffers will bring it in before yes, the end of the show. Thank you, sir. Right. And and uh, I just had one quick question. You don't have to address it. I know that uh, other people would probably want to get to get to you, but um, I'm really concerned uh, about a national issue, which is um, uh, what's happening with the housing market and the subprime loans and how they've disproportionately affected the working poor of this country. Um, and how much, I mean, there, it's, it's the credit card companies and the kind of debt 
that the poor are are under this this great weight, um, and they're sinking further and further into debt, and the middle class is as feeling the effects of this as well. And of course, the housing market has been sort of the indicator of the health of our economy, um, and I wonder what uh, Congress and you in particular um, are doing to relieve um, some of that weight, that burden uh, from the backs of, of the poor and the middle class in this country. Well, as you know, Zara, we haven't done a whole lot in the last six years. But as I said earlier in the program, there's a new day in Congress. I don't have a specific answer to your question because I don't know of any specific legislation that is being introduced to address this. But I do know that there's a new sensitivity in Congress about housing issues. All right, Zora. Thanks a lot for the call. We appreciate it. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Karen is on the line. Karen? Oh, Don is next. Don, I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, well, Don. Uh, yes, uh, almost following up on the last person's last question is the fact that uh, I grew up in the Vietnam era and saw both President Johnson and President Nixon run up huge federal deficits to fund the war in Vietnam. And uh, I think uh, one of the things that I really feel the next president of the United States, assuming we do get out of uh, Iraq, is that all the uh, no higher taxes and tax cuts and the not funding uh, through taxation the present war and just doing it on the credit card, uh, what can Congress do uh, now? I, I really, you know, I'll say it, I, I really feel we need to raise taxes to reduce the uh, impact of inflation it's going to have. I remember what happened to President uh, Carter when he got hit with the bill for Vietnam and the hyperinflation we had uh, following the Vietnam War, following the Korean War, following World War II, um, this administration seems to be providing, a, besides the legacy of death, injury to the people of Iraq and the uh, men and women of our U.S. forces, uh, we're going to have some financial problems ahead so do you feel like he's setting the next president up for a fall? Oh, I think he, whoever he's a Republican or a Democrat, I wouldn't want to be the next president. Okay. Baron, do you want to address that? Well, it's uh, uh, Don, it's uh, uh, a, a tough question that you're answering, and I f- I'm fully aware of what you're talking about now. Um, I, I would uh, answer the, the statement by saying that this is the first time I know of in the history of this country that we're fighting a war and cutting taxes at the same time. And that's what happened over the last six years. We actually started a war and cut taxes at the same time. And we went from surpluses that we had back in the year 2000 to these huge deficits all over again. And I was so disappointed. When we created the surpluses back in the year 2000, it was because of the pay-go rules that I mentioned mm-hmm. uh, to you uh, uh, earlier in the program. And then those, those uh, pay-go rules were uh, set aside. But uh, what really happened is there was an election in, in, in the year uh, 2000. And um, those surpluses and the monetary policies that we had in place to create those surpluses were done away with under George Bush. And I believe personally, and this may sound partisan, uh, maybe it is partisan, but I think it's also factual that because those policies were changed, because we cut taxes so dramatically, because we started this war, uh, is the reason why the surpluses have gone uh, back up into huge uh, annual uh, d- uh, deficits. Uh, I think this year it's $250 billion in, in just one year. And, and also on that, the thing that other really – I am consider myself a fiscal conservative just as much as I view protecting the environment uh, essential as far as protecting resources. I think financial resources are also – uh, need to be protected and used extremely wisely. And this administration seems way off, way out of its league. But the other side of this issue right now that I'm concerned about is that our ready reserve component of the airborne troops are normally kept on standby duty, uh, ready to be deployed in 24 hours. Now it will take over a month to get uh, out of Louisiana and into the field. If our crazy friend in North Korea does something incredibly stupid with the options that are limited. I, I see, saw a bumper, a sticker on a car uh, yesterday about no first strike. 
uh, the fact we don't have a, a conventional reserve of our military forces at this point means the fact that we may end up finding ourselves out of no other option having to go nuclear. Don, uh, I don't know about the nuclear option, but I do believe that you're right about our readiness. As a matter of fact, uh, last night in, in Jasper, Indiana, I was speaking to a large crowd of 200 to the VFW there, and I was uh, mentioning the fact that the war in Iraq is eroding our readiness with the troops here in America. If, if we were asked to be our troops to be deployed, let's say, in North Korea, they wouldn't be ready to go, not because it's their fault. It's just that we're not spending the money to train them and provide them with the equipment they need for that deployment. And it's very con- I'm very concerned about it. Well, All right, Don. Good luck. Thank we'll, you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Don. Bye-bye. We've got uh, several more people that want to talk to, to Barron, so we're going to have to keep moving. Karen is next. Karen? Hi, Barron. This is Karen. Um, I have something that's uh, really disturbing me lately, and it's that I've been reading about, and it's a great follow-up to the last conversation, I've been reading about the privatization of the military using companies like Blackwater and uh, who hire mercenaries uh, both from the U.S. and from other countries and uh, paid at top dollar from our taxes. So what we have is this cycle of private, army, uh, uh, private armies. We have Halliburton. We have, we have Bechtel. We have private army destroy, rebuild. So we have this vicious circle cycle, circle, and uh, it eliminates the incentive for peace. Could you address that, please? I know exactly what you're talking about, Karen. I had the same concerns that you have. You should know that uh, I'm told that Henry Waxman on the Governmental Affairs Committee is planning on uh, doing some uh, investigations in this, in, in this area so that we can get the, to the bottom of it and find out uh, exactly what's going on. You know, one of the changes that has been made, Karen, uh, in Congress, because the Democrats did get in control, and I'm not saying uh, uh, also to the listeners out there that Democrats are lily white. We're not, of course. But for the last six years, before Democrats actually got control of Congress, there was no investigations of the administration, no oversight. And I strongly uh, believe in a a, uh, robust uh, Congress that is making sure that they're watchdogging what the administration is is doing. And in this area of Blackwater, uh, I believe there will be investigations and and questions that are going to be asked. And so this will... This will uh, be in the light of day, and I think Americans will know more about it in the weeks and months to come. Well, I think that's a really good thing. I appreciate that. Thank you. You're All right. Thanks a lot, Karen. We have about 10 minutes to go. We have uh, a couple more emails, three more phone calls that I know of. So let's go to Carolyn. And, Carolyn, keep it brief if you can. Yes, I will. Um, Congressman Hill, I'm very glad that you are back in power. Thank you, Carolyn. And I, I am too. <laughs> um, I now have a sense of hope for the future of this country, which I have not had for the last six years. Um, but my question is not on a specific issue. It's a little more general. Um, I'd like you to discuss a little bit about voting a party line vote versus voting what you believe or what your morals tell you, whether it's you or colleagues. I mean, people vote the party line. And I, and I know sometimes people set aside their own personal beliefs to do that. And is that difficult for you or for your colleagues? No, it's, it's not difficult for me personally. I can't answer for my other colleagues. Now, I'm a Democrat and proud to be a Democrat, and I vote with the Democrats in Congress. I think the average is right around 89 or 90 percent of the time, which I believe is an independent voice. Uh, for example, uh, I voted against the Democratic budget proposal uh, last week uh, and was only of a few Democrats that did that. And, but I'm trying to keep my campaign pledges. Well, one of the things I talked about was building a, a wall around Social Security and not using the Social Security surpluses to pay for other expenses in the budget. And the Democratic budget proposal did not do that. They were using Social Security surpluses to do that. So I went against my leadership and voted against the bill because I needed to keep my campaign promises to my constituents back home. Okay. So is it, is it uh, easy? No, I, I'll admit it's not very easy to go against, uh, you know, your colleagues and your leadership. We were asking you to vote a different way. But my responsibilities are to the people of the 9th District, and I plan on keeping that promise. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Thanks a lot, Carolyn. Here's an email that came in. It said, uh, heard the representative was a lobbyist while out of office. What What were the firm's names and what specifically did they advocate for? <laughs> well, during the campaign, it was claimed that I was a lobbyist, but I was never a lobbyist. I never registered as a lobbyist. I worked for a company that had a lobbying arm, and that's how the, my political opponents uh, tried to say I was a lobbyist. But I actually did business development within that firm. The name of the firm was M Capital Management. 
Okay. And then uh, the second part of that uh, same questioner's uh, writing is, when we eventually leave the Iraqis to their own passions, do you think they will find a semi-peaceful solution or just butcher each other forever? Well, I I think it's an exaggeration to say that they're going to butcher each other forever. Are they going to have problems? Yeah. Uh, It's not going to be... uh, uh, a democracy like we would like for it to be, and, and they're going to have difficulties, and there's, there's going to be problems in there. There's no question about it. I think what everybody is missing is we really don't know how severe the problem is going to be for the people in Iraq. But the bottom line is is we've gotten rid of Saddam Hussein uh, for whatever uh, reason that we, we did that uh, by Mr. Bush, and now it's time for the Iraqis to step up to the plate and run their own country. We can't do this for them any longer, and that's what I was saying earlier in the program. Is it going to be uh, something that's uh, going to be easy for them? Of course not. It's not going to be, but they need to, they need to do this. All right. All right. Let's go to the phones. Joe, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, hi, Congressman. Um, this is Joe, and um, I'm glad that you are back in, uh, in the office. Thank you, Joe. And uh, I just want to make two comments, you know. One is if the Democrats want to win the next election, okay, they've got to keep focus on two issues. One is the health care, and second is the immigration, okay. Illegal is the illegal immigration. And health care, we've got to do something about the health care, otherwise the party will lose out. And, and the third thing that I feel we should do as Democrats is put Dick Cheney's photo everywhere and say, do you want this people or do you want... Democrats, and that will take care of it. (laughs) (laughs) I think you might be right, Joe. All right, and thank you, Joe. Thanks for those comments. And Steve is next. Steve? Steve, Hello, Congressman Hill. Hi, Steve. Um, I recently heard that you got on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Is is that the name of it? That's true. Um, I'm glad to hear that because... um, Energy is one of my issues. I, in fact, I think it's the most important issue of our lifetime. And um, just want to make a comment about that. Uh, our transportation policies use up a lot of our energy, and uh, a big part of it is because we've doing all, been doing all our transportation planning based on the car only and ignoring most other things. And uh, I think we need to, to change that and make it more of an intermodal um, transportation system where where we can work in some more efficient uh, um, transportation means. Um, High-speed passenger rail is one thing I think we could do. And uh, I don't really have I don't really have a question for you, but I just want you to let want you to know that um, this is an important issue to me and many other people I know. Well, Steve, uh, I agree with you that uh, mass transportation and trains are part of the solution to our energy problems. Um, Interestingly enough, I was down in Salem, Indiana, talking to Cecil Smith. You you probably don't know who Cecil Smith is, but he was a newspaper reporter for the Salem paper down there and is a big advocate of trains. As a matter of fact, you ought to go to Salem. There is a a, a museum on trains in Salem, Indiana. Uh, But I was talking to him about this very issue, that uh, mass transportation and using trains more effectively in business is part of the solution to our energy problems in this country. As a matter of fact, I've talked to a lot of businesses who would prefer to ship by train because it's, it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that uh, I'm against trucking. I'm not. But I think we need to do more in, in, the, in the area of rail. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people don't know about how these other systems work. Everyone knows the car because everyone owns one. And I think we might need to educate people about all these other modes. And, Thanks, Steve. I have an email that came in specifically asking about this same topic, Uh, more specifically interested in um, a potential rail system um, by a way – from uh, Bloomington to join Bloomington and Indianapolis, um, stopping through Martinsville as a way to cut back on commuter traffic. Well, it's an interesting idea. I've not looked at that specifically, but again, I would just uh, uh, reemphasize that rail is a part of our um, – uh, is part of the solution to our energy uh, problems that we have. It's, it's also uh, a contribution to global warming mm-hmm. as well because uh, uh, it doesn't emit as much carbon into the atmosphere as we do by uh, cars and buses and uh, and uh, trucks. Going back to the future. There we Trains, go. Right. Okay, we have one more phone call I think we have time for. It's DJ. DJ? Hey, Baron Hill. I wanted to say thank you for uh, com- uh, having a, good, a lot of uh, – character during the campaign when your opponent seemed to not have much. Thank you, DJ. That's uh, inspiring to us, I think. 
I wanted to say, make a real quick comment, and then I'll let you finish up and you can reply to it. All of these issues that we seem to be raising, whether it's health care or trains or transportation, education, the war in Iraq, it, I, I'm frustrated because it just keeps coming down to a question of priorities. And until we get our priorities in order, we can, we'll, we'll argue to the end of time about whether we ought to have hovercrafts or whatever. But the, the priorities question seems to be the problem, not the money and not the taxes, because given the money we've spent in Iraq over the last few years, we could solve a lot of those problems. And I know this is idealistic, and I know that you know that, but it seems to me that until there's some shift we're not, that really makes us say, well, we value people over the extraction of mineral wealth, then, then these are just problems we're going to deal with to the end. And I don't know what's going to happen to make that shift come about, whether it's some catastrophic environmental event or uh, war on a global scale or famine or whatever. And, and I, you know, I know that there's people chuckling about, oh, yeah, the sky is falling. But um, I just want to get your feelings on that. All right, about one minute, Baron. Well, DJ, first of all, I heard some birds chirping in the background. You must be outside on the cell phone. Yeah, I'm on my porch. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, you know what? There has been a shift. It's already happened. It happened last November in the year 2006. That's just the beginning. I don't think it's going to require a, a cataclysmic uh, event for this thing to get turned around and to reprioritize what you're talking about. I believe that is slowly but surely changing in the Congress of the United States. Now, we've got another election to go through in 2008 uh, for that to be advanced. And so uh, that's what democracy is all about. And we listened to you in 2006, and I personally am trying to deliver on reprioritizing what needs to be done in this country. Well, speaking of elections, right. real quickly, can you say one thing about the Electoral College and the fact that my vote for president is, may ten, as well be cast to the wind? This would be 10 seconds. I noticed in the paper this morning that Birch Bayh is being quoted again and trying to uh, establish a direct uh, uh, election vote for the President of the United States by eliminating the uh, Electoral College, and I applaud his efforts. All right. Thanks a lot, DJ, and thanks a lot to all of our callers. Baron Hill, thanks a lot for being here. Apologies to the emails we didn't get to. That's right, and we hope you'll come back. Absolutely. All right. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hageman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.